Now, as Alric stood before the broken entrance of the tower, his mind was beset with bursting thoughts which fled about his skull, made overtones to his convictions, and threatened to send him hopelessly back to rejoin his companions. But he fought them, forced them down, forgot them, clung to his remembrance of the White Lord's assurance, and passed into the shadowed shell which still had the smell of burnt wood and fabric about its blackened interior. This tower, which had formed a funeral pyre for the murdered corpse of his first love, Simmeril, and his warped cousin, her brother Urkun, had been gutted of innards. Only the stone stairway remained, and that, he noted, peered into the gloom through which rays of sunlight slanted, had collapsed before it reached the roof. He dare not think, for thought might rob him of action. Instead, he placed a foot upon the first stair and began to climb, and as he did so, a faint sound entered his ears, or it may have been that it came from within his mind. However it reached his consciousness, it sounded like a faraway orchestra tuning itself. As he climbed higher, the sound mounted, rhythmic yet discordant, until by the time he reached the final step, still left intact, it thundered through his skull, pounded through his body, producing the sensation of dull pain. He paused and stared downward to the tower's floor far below. Fears beset him. He wondered whether Lord Donblas had intended him to climb to the highest point he could easily reach, or the actual point which was still some twenty feet above him. He decided it was best to take the White Lord literally, and swinging the great chaos shield upon his back, reached above him. He got his fingers into a crack in the wall, which now sloped gently inwards. He heaved himself up, his legs dangling and his feet seeking a hold. He had always been troubled by heights and disliked the sensation that came to him as he glanced down to the rubble-laden floor 80 feet below. But he continued to climb, and the climbing was made easier by the fissures in the tower's wall. Though he expected to fall, he did not, and at last reached the unsafe roof, easing himself through a hole onto the sloping exterior. But by bit he climbed, until he was on the highest part of the tower. Then, fearing hesitation still, he stepped outwards over the festering streets of Imrir far below. The discordant music stopped. A roaring note replaced it. Swirling waves of red and black rushed towards him, and then he had burst through them to find he was standing on firm turf beneath a small, pale sun, the smell of grass in his nostrils. He noted that, whereas the ancient world seen in his dream had seemed more colourful than his own, this world in turn contained even less colour, though it seemed to be cleaner in its outlines and sharper focus, and the breeze that blew against his face was colder. He began to walk over the grass towards a thick forest of low, solid foliage which lay ahead. He reached the perimeter of the forest but did not enter, circumnavigating it until he came to a stream that went off into the distance, away from the forest. He noticed with curiosity that the bright, clear water appeared not to move. It was frozen, though not by any natural process that he recognised. 
It had all the attributes of a summer stream, yet it did not flow. Feeling that this phenomenon contrasted strangely with the rest of the scenery, he swung the round chaos shield onto his arm, drew his throbbing sword and began to follow the stream. The grass gave way to gorse and rocks, with the occasional clump of waving ferns of a variety he didn't recognise. Ahead he thought he heard the tinkle of water, but here the stream was still frozen. As he passed a rock taller than the rest he heard a voice above him. Elric. There on the rock stood a young dwarf with a long brown beard that reached below his waist. He clutched a spear, his only weapon, and he was clad in russet bricks and a jerkin, with a green cap on his head and no shoes on his broad naked feet. He had eyes like quartz that were at once hard, harsh and humorous. That's my name, Auric said quizzically. Yet if this be the world of the future, how is it you know me? I am not of this world myself. At least, not exactly. I have no existence in time as you know it, but move here and there in the shadow worlds that the gods make. It is my nature to do so. In return for allowing me to exist, the gods sometimes use me as a messenger. My name is Germais the Crooked, as unfinished as those worlds themselves. As he talked, he clambered down the rock and stood looking at Alric. What's your purpose here? asked the albino. Methought you sought the horn of fate. True. Know you where it lies? Aye, smiled the young dwarf sardonically. It's buried with the still-living corpse of a hero of this age, a warrior they called Roland, an outlandish name. Well, no more than yours to other ears. Roland, save that his life was not so doom-beset, is your counterpart in his own land. He met his death in a valley not far from here, trapped and betrayed by a fellow warrior. The horn was with him then, and he blew it once before he died. Some say that the echoes still resound through the valley and will resound forever, though Roland perished many years ago. The horn's full purpose is unknown here, and was unknown even to Roland. It is called Oliphant, and with his magic sword, Durandana, was buried with him in the monstrous grave mound that you seek yonder. The dwarf pointed into the distance, and Auric saw that he indicated something he had earlier taken to be a large hillock. What must I do to gain this horn? he asked. The dwarf grinned with a hint of malice in his voice. You must match that bodkin there against Roland's Durandana. His was concentrated by the forces of light, whereas yours was forged by the forces of darkness. It should be an interesting conflict. When you say he's dead... Then how can he fight me? He wears the horn by a thong about his neck. If you attempt to remove it, he will defend his ownership, waking from the deathless sleep, which seems to be the lot of most heroes in this world. Auric smiled. Well, it seems they must be short of heroes if they have to preserve them in that manner. Yeah, perhaps, the dwarf answered carelessly, for there are a dozen or more who lie sleeping somewhere in this land alone. They are supposed to awaken only when a desperate need arises. Yet I've known unpleasant things to happen, and still they have slept. Could be that they wait until the end of the world, which the gods may destroy if it proves unsuitable, in which case they will fight to prevent such a happening. 
Now, this is merely a poorly conceived theory of my own and of little weight. The dwarf bobbed a cynical bow and hefting his spear saluted Elric. Farewell, Elric of Melnibone. When you wish to return, I will be here to lead you. And return you must, whether alive or dead, for, though you may not be aware of it, your very presence, your physical appearance here, contradicts this environment. Only one thing fits here. And what's that? Your sword. My sword? Strange. I should have thought that would be the last thing. He shook a growing idea out of his mind. He did not have time to speculate. I have no liking to be here, he commented as the dwarf clambered over the rocks. He glanced in the direction of the great burial mound and began to advance towards it. Beside him he saw that the stream was moving naturally, and he had the impression that, though law influenced this world, it was to some extent still forced to deal with the disrupting influence of chaos. The grave barrow, he could now see, was fenced about with giant slabs of unadorned stone. Beyond the stones were olive trees that had dull jewels hanging from their branches, and beyond them, through the leafy apertures, Auric saw a tall, curved entrance blocked by gates of brass embossed with gold. Though strong, Stormbringer, he said to his sword, I wonder if you'll be strong enough to war in this world as well as giving my body vitality. Let's test you. He advanced to the gate and, drawing back his arm, delivered a mighty blow upon it with the rune sword. The metal rang and a dent appeared. Again he struck, this time holding the sword with both hands, but then a voice cried from his right. What demon would disturb dead Roland's rest? Who speaks the language of Malnibane? Auric retorted boldly. I speak the language of demons, for I perceive that is what you are. I know of no Mulnabuni and I am well versed in the ancient mysteries. A proud boast for a woman, said Elric, who had not yet seen the speaker. She emerged then from around the barrow, and stood staring at him from out of her glowing green eyes. She had a long, beautiful face, and was almost as pale as himself, though her hair was jet black. What's your name? he asked. And are you a native of this world? I am named Vivian, an enchantress, but, earthly enough... Your master knows the name of Vivian, who once loved Roland, though he was too upright to indulge her, for she is immortal and a witch. She laughed good-humouredly. Therefore I am familiar with demons of your like, and I do not fear you. Aroint thee. Aroint thee, or I shall call Bishop Turpin to exorcise thee. Some of your words, said Elric courteously, are unfamiliar, and the speech of my folk much garbled. Are you some guardian of this hero's tomb? Self-made guardian, I now go. She pointed towards the stone slabs. Uh, that is not possible. Corpse within has something of value to me. The horn of fate, we call it, but you know it by another name. Oliphant? But that's a blessed instrument. No demon would dare touch it. Even I. I am no demon. I am sufficiently human, I swear. Now stand aside. This cursed door resists my efforts too well. Aye she said thoughtfully. You could be a man, though an unlikely one. But the white face and hair, the red eyes, the tongue you speak. Sorcerer I be, but no demon. Please, stand aside. She looked carefully into his face, and her look disturbed him. 
He took her by her shoulder. She felt real enough, yet somehow she had little real presence. It was as if she were far away rather than close to him. They stared at one another, both curious, both troubled. He whispered, What knowledge could you have of my language? Is this world a dream of mine, or of the gods? It seems scarcely tangible. Why? She heard him. Say you so of us. What of your ghostly self? You seem an apparition from the dead past. From the past. Aha. And you are in my future, as yet unformed. Perhaps that brings us to a conclusion. She did not pursue the topic, but said suddenly, Stranger, you will never break this door down. If you can touch Oliphant, that speaks of you as mortal despite your appearance, you must need the horn for an important task. Elric smiled. Aye, for if I do not take it back from whence it came, you will never exist. She frowned. Hints, hints. I feel close to a discovery, yet I cannot grasp why. That's unusual for Vivian. Here, she took a big key from her gown and offered it to him. This is the key to open Roland's tomb. It is the only one. I had to kill to get it, but oft times I venture into the gloom of his grave to stare down at his face and pine, that I might revive him and keep him living forever on my island home. Take the horn, rouse him, and when he has slain you, he will come to me in my warmth, my offer of everlasting life rather than lie in that cold place again. Go and be slain by Roland. He took the key. Thanks, Lady Vivian. If it were possible to convince one who, in truth, did not yet exist, I would tell you that Roland's slaying of me would be worse for you than if I am successful. He put the large key in the lock and it turned easily. The doors swung open and he saw that a long, low-roofed corridor twisted before him. Unhesitatingly, he advanced down it towards a flickering light that he could see through the cold and misty gloom. Yet as he walked, it was as if he glided in a dream less real than that he'd experienced the previous night. Now he entered the funereal chamber, illuminated by tall candles surrounding the bier of a man who lay upon it, dressed in armour of a crude and unfamiliar design. A huge broadsword, almost as large as Stormbringer, gripped on his chest, and upon the hilt, attached to his neck by a silver chain, the Horn of Fate, Oliphant. The man's face, seen in the candlelight, was strange, old and yet with a youthful appearance, the brow smooth and the features unlined. Elric took Stormbringer in his left hand and reached out to grasp the horn. He made no attempt at caution, but wrenched it off Roland's neck. A great roar came from the hero's throat. Immediately, he had raised himself to a sitting position, the sword shifting into his two hands, his legs swinging off the bier. His eyes widened as he saw Elric with the horn in his hands, and he jumped at the albino, the sword Duradana whistling downwards towards Elric's head. He raised the shield and blocked the blow, slipped the horn into his jerkin, and backing away, returned Stormbringer to his right hand. Roland was now shouting something in a language completely unfamiliar to Elric. He did not bother trying to understand, since the angry tones were sufficient to tell the knight was not suggesting a peaceful negotiation. He continued defending himself, without once carrying the offensive to Roland, backing inch by inch down the long tunnel towards the barrow's mouth. 
Every time Durer and Dana struck the chaos shield, both sword and shield gave out wild notes of great intensity. Implacably, the hero continued to press Elric backwards, his broadsword whirling and striking the shield, sometimes the blade with fantastic strength. Then they had broken into daylight, and Roland seemed momentarily blinded. Elric glimpsed Vivian watching them eagerly, for it appeared Roland was winning. However, in daylight, and with no chance of avoiding the angered knight, Elric retaliated with all the energy he had been saving up until this moment. Shield high, sword swinging, he now took the attack, surprising Roland, who was evidently unused to this behaviour on the part of an opponent. Stormbringer snarled as it bit into Roland's poorly forged armour of iron, riveted with big, unsightly nails painted on the front with a dull red cross that was a scarcely adequate insignia for so famous a hero. But there was no mistaking Durandana's powers, for, though seemingly as crudely forged as the armour, did not lose its edge, and threatened to bite through the chaos shield with every stroke. Ulrich's left arm was numb from the blows, and his right arm ached. Lord Donblas had not lied to him when he said that the strength of his weapons would be diminished on this world. Roland paused, shouting something, but Elric did not heed him, seized his opportunity and rushed in to crush his shield against Roland's body. The knight reeled and staggered, his sword giving off a keening note. Elric sprang at a gap between Roland's helmet and gorget. The head sprang off the shoulders and rolled grotesquely away, but no blood had pumped from the jugular. The eyes of the head remained open, staring at Elric. Vivian screamed and shouted something in the same language which Roland had used. Ulrich stepped back, his face grim. Oh, his legend! His legend, she cried. The only hope the people have is that Roland will someday ride once more to their aid. Now you have slayed him, fiend. Possessed I may be, he said quietly as she sobbed by the headless corpse, but I was ordained by the gods to do this work. I'll take my leave of your drab world now. Have you no sorrow? Have you no sorrow for the crime you've done? None, madam, for this is only one of many such acts which I am told serve some greater purpose. That I sometimes doubt the truth of this consolation need not concern you. Farewell. And he walked away from there, passed through the olive grove and the tall stones, the horn of fate cold against his heart. He followed the river towards the high rock where he saw a small figure poised and, when he reached it, looked up at the young dwarf, Germais the Crooked, took the horn from his jerkin and displayed it. Germais chuckled. So, Roland is dead for all time now, and you, Alric, have left a fragment of a legend in this world, if it survives. Well, shall I escort you back to your own plane? Aye, in hurry. Germais skipped down the rocks and stood beside the tall albino. "'Hmm,' he mused. "'That horn could prove troublesome to us. "'Best replace it in your jerkin and keep it covered by your shield.' "'Eric obeyed the dwarf and followed him down to the banks of the strangely frozen river. "'It looked as if it should have been moving, but it was evidently not. "'Germais leapt into it and incredibly began to sink. "'Quickly, follow!' "'Eric stepped in after him and for a moment stood on the frozen water before he also began to sink.' 
Though the stream was shallow, they continued to sink in, until all similarity to water was gone, and they were passing down into rich darkness that became warm and heavy-scented. Jermaine's pulled at his sleeve. This way. And they shot off at right angles, darting from side to side, up and down, through a maze that apparently only Germais could see. Against his chest the horn seemed to heave and he pressed his shield to it. Then he blinked as he found himself in the light again, staring at the great red sun throbbing in a dark blue sky. His feet were on something solid. He looked and saw that it was the tower of Baal Nisbet. For a while longer the horn heaved as if alive, like a trapped bird, but after some moments it became quiescent. Elric lowered himself to the roof and began to edge down it until he came to the gap through which he had passed earlier. Then suddenly he looked up as he heard a noise in the sky. There, his feet planted on air, stood grinning Germais the Crooked. I'll be passing on, for I like not this world at all, he chuckled. It has been a pleasure to have been a part in this. Goodbye, Elric. Remember me, the unfinished one, to the lords of the higher worlds. And perhaps you could hint to them that the sooner they improve their memories, or else their creative powers, the sooner I shall be happy. Elric said, mm, Perhaps you'd best be content with your lot, Germais. There are disadvantages to stability, too. Germais shrugged and vanished. Slowly, all but spent, Oric descended the fractured wall and with great relief reached the first stair to stumble down the rest and run back to the tower of De'Araputna with the news of his success.